Well, we're going to read from Romans chapter 16 for the last time for a while. <clears throat> Romans chapter 16. We're going to read the, the last few verses, 27, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it's very often, I think, we come to church and our minds have an agenda. We have an agenda in our hearts. Perhaps we've been going through questions in our, in our own life, and we hope as we sit in the pew that you're going to get the answer to the questions that you came with. Sometimes we come and our minds are preoccupied by the things that are being said and taught in the world by the media and by our politicians and so on. And those ideas are milling around in our minds and the language that they use is very often uppermost in your mind. And that means that when one is trying to speak the English language, sometimes one uses words that trigger something in your head that was not in my head when I used it. So I'm just giving a warning. If I use something, word that you recognize from the woke people on one side or the anti-woke people on the other side, I couldn't give a monkey's uncle about either of those. And I'm using it in the normal usage of the English language where it interprets the Bible. Amen. <sighs> okay, now that I've got that off my chest, uh, we're going to look at this great passage at the end of Romans 16, which is an appropriate conclusion, really, to a, a long letter in which Paul has been expounding the gospel. As you read it on its own, you recognize that there's a kind of liturgical shape to it, and it's a reminder that theology is often best learned in the context of the liturgy that we use in the worshiping of God in the life of a Christian church. And this short conclusion actually is, is a suitable conclusion to the teaching of the book in that it is, we find here, wonderfully compressed and elegantly expressed the theology of the gospel that has been expounded in this book. And coming from Romans chapter 1 where the gospel was introduced to us as the gospel of God concerning his son. And as we come to this conclusion, four elements of who God is and what God is are drawn out by the author, by Paul, for our upbuilding and our teaching. The power of God the gospel of God, the mystery of God, and the glory of God. Let's look at those things together. First of all, the power of God. Look at the, how this doxology begins. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. 
The hymn here is principally the Father, but with the Father we also think of the Son and the Holy Spirit, since there is only one God, and the Father is usually singled out, as it were, as the principle of the Godhead, and therefore in the Apostles' Creed we just confess together that we believe in God the Father Almighty. But the same language is used of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and so we can say that the Holy Trinity is almighty. But here the Father particularly is in view. And the Father is able. This is a word that denotes God's power. It's from the Greek word dunamis that gives us the word dynamite. This is the power of God that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's about the power of God we read about in Ephesians 3, now to him who by the power at work within us is able, able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. That is, God is power. He is powerful, powerful in a way that is unique to himself as God. He alone is powerful, for creatures can do nothing without God whereas God can do all things without creatures. Therefore, he is called, in, uh, in Jude, he is called the only potentate. And that word potentate, again, derives from the word for power, dunamis, that we are looking at this morning. Now, how does this power of God work? Well, God's power effects what God wills. That is, God wills something. He determines to do something, and his power affects it, makes it happen. This means his power is an absolute power. None can resist it. He can produce the desired and decreed result that he has ordained. His power is that than which none greater, none equal, can be imagined or can exist. This whole epistle began with the power of God, the power of God by which he raised Jesus from the dead. And here that same power, we're told, is put at the service of you and I as Christian people and of the church, churches as a whole. He is able to establish or strengthen us. In other words, by his power... He's able to take weak and shaky little you and me at times in our lives when we feel like that. He's able to take us and make us strong and stable instead of melting and going all over the place. Make us strong and stable. Make us strong and stable in our faith as opposed to error in our holiness as we are confronted by temptation, and in our courage as we face opposition and persecution. Paul was thinking about this church in Roman, as we've seen in expounding this 16th chapter. This is a very multi-ethnic church that was facing several controversies from within it. The Jews and the Gentiles were kind of arguing with each other. The Jewish Christians, the the Gentile Christians were having a bit of a go at each other, putting each other down, blaming each other, criticizing one another. That was going on. And there were dangers also 
facing this church from false teachers who were sitting among the people or on the outskirts of the people sniffing around and trying to pull people in their direction. And he reminds this church and our church that God is able to strengthen its members in truth and holiness and unity. God who can do the greater thing, who created and sustains all things. The God who wills something, the universe, and it comes to be as it is today. He accomplishes what he wills, and he does so unfailingly, even when uh, he wills what is impossible by nature. In other words, the power of God reminds us in the vagaries of our human experience that there is nothing he cannot do. Now he's, that's the power of God. Look at the gospel of God. What's the good news? He is able to establish us according to, Paul says, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. When Paul says it's my gospel, he's not saying he made it up or that he's responsible for it or that he should be praised for it. No, he's distinguishing the gospel he preaches from the false gospels. Those false gospels that were being insinuated into the church by false apostles. He's already suggested that even Christian people can easily be duped by false teachers. If you read the book of Galatians, for example, Paul writes to them and he says, I'm absolutely astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and you're turning to another gospel. Happens easily. Even in churches planted and run by an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he reminds these people in Galatia, he reminds them of this. The gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it by any men. It came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul had this amazing experience on the road to Damascus. And he was given a revelation of the gospel. Now he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to tell the other apostles in Jerusalem what he'd learned so they could check the boxes so that they knew that he'd encountered Christ because he'd gone from being ignorant of the gospel to being gospel in every part of his being so that if you pricked him, his blood would be gospel. So here's Paul. He's saying it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. Right at the very beginning of this book, as he's introducing himself to the people there in Rome whom he's never met and doesn't know, he introduces himself as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And what does the gospel entail? Well, it entails the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He told us right in the beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that this gospel concerns his, that is God's son. It's the gospel of God concerning his son. In other words, this message that we have is a twofold message. One, it concerns a person. 
a real person, a real personality. And two, it concerns what that person has done for you. The person, the person at the heart of the gospel is the Son of God. Son of God by nature, not by title, but by nature. This Son of God by nature is everything the Father is and can do everything the Father does. Jesus made that clear in John's Gospel. He is eternally from the Father. And thus he acts from the Father when he comes into the world. He comes down into the world. I mean, heaven isn't really up, but the language is used for our sakes. He descends to our place. He comes and becomes one of us. He takes on a human nature from the Virgin Mary. The Father prepares the body for him. The Spirit prepares the Virgin's womb for him. And from Mary, he receives his human identity, born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, it says. And the whole Trinity is involved in the coming of Jesus into the world. And the whole action of the Trinity terminates in the person of the Son himself. He is the person who Jesus, the the Messiah, is. He is the Son of God. And in his human nature, his divine nature is hidden. If you met Jesus, he'd be just like a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home. If you met Jesus, he just would be ordinary man. You'd never think, you'd never pick him out from the crowd. He had no comeliness that we should desire him. He wasn't particularly tall, dark, and handsome, or anything else that would get your attention. Nothing would have separated him out from the crowd. You'd have seen someone who, was, who had an ordinary human existence, who lived with utter perfect devotion to God and who offered God as a human being loving obedience as a man. But who he truly was, the person he was, is the Son of God, which only becomes clear by his resurrection from the dead. That means it's unorthodox for anyone to teach or argue that the man Christ Jesus was adopted as Son of God at his resurrection. It's quite wrong for at least two reasons. First, the human nature of Christ can be distinguished, but it cannot be divided in him. You can't take it away from the fact that he is God. Secondly, the person Jesus of Nazareth is, is the Son of God. We're adopted as a free gift. He is the Son in whom and by whom we are adopted into the family of God. So God's power then establishes the church in the gospel. So everything addressed in this letter is either an explanation of or an entailment of that good news of the gospel. Thirdly, the mystery of God. Power of God, gospel of God, mystery of God. This gospel is not something that's parachuted out of, from out of the blue. It's not something that is now 
or, or, or in the sense of recent, don't let that word mystery mystify you. Just go where the words take you. Notice that the, the gospel, uh, the preaching of Jesus Christ, is according to the revelation of the mystery. The revelation of the mystery. That's the word apocalypse. It's the word we use for the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must come uh, and will sure, surely take place. A revelation given to John by Jesus from the Father, intended to strengthen the churches in view of the trials that are expected to intensify as the latter-day battle comes to its climax. If you're going through tough times today, brother or sister, if you're struggling today in your Christian life, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. You will find in the Lord the strength you need, in His mighty power. It's available to you. It's available to you. And let it be signified by the elements on this table as you take it and as you make it your own. Now, specifically, the gospel is seen as a revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, we're told. Now, there's a principle in the Bible that the secret things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. God is allowed to have his secrets. There's a warning against you and I seeking to know what God alone knows and which God has chosen not to reveal to us. It's a good thing that God withholds from us things that he has planned and prepared for us. Things that fall out in your life, it wouldn't really be good for you to know that that was going to come years ahead of time. God knows best, and we must commit those things to him. But in the book of Daniel, we learn that a mystery in Bible language is something that has been determined by God for the end times, which begins with Jesus' resurrection and finish at his return, and that only the God of heaven can reveal or unlock that mystery to us. This is what's going on in the book of Revelation. There is something that's been determined by God in the counsel of his own will before the, anything existed outside of God. And then in that, in that decision, that determination, that exists because God has willed it. It exists before he even does anything outside of himself because God only Think when things are in God's mind, it's as if they were already there. Now, I want to say three things about this mystery of the gospel. First of all, the gospel is revealed truth. Revealed truth. There is in it a cluster of truths which were kept secret, but they're now revealed. Those Secret truths, secrets really, center on first Christ and then the church. Those things that people had not thought about concerning Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, how he would come into the world. 
how he would be born of the Virgin, how he would suffer and die, how he would be raised from the dead. People just didn't clock that before it was revealed. And then there's the church. As the Jews read the Old Testament, they didn't see realize that the Old Testament was actually telling them that God's ultimate purpose was a multi-ethnic multitude comprising Jews and Gentiles in one church. The gospel is revealed truth. Secondly, the gospel is recorded truth. Notice how it's made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets. Now, that's a reference to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. What was revealed in Scripture perhaps lacked clarity until Jesus came and taught and died and rose again and was exalted. But Jesus was able to say to his own disciples, the two disciples he met on the road to Damascus, probably a couple on their way back from Jerusalem, and the road to Emmaus, rather, And he says to them this, O foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, five books of Moses, and all of the prophets, he interpreted to these two in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then that very evening he appeared. He was an Emmaus Next thing, he appears in Jerusalem with the rest of the disciples, and he says this to them, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and in the Book of Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. The gospel is revealed truth. It's recorded truth. It's there. And now we have to come to the Old Testament scriptures with our Jesus glasses on, with what we call the rule of faith. You find in in the Apostles' Creed that we recited this morning, we bring to it the knowledge that God is Trinity. We we bring with the knowledge that Christ was incarnate and that that he died for our sins and rose again from the dead. We come to read the Bible now as a unity. It's all Christian Scripture. It's all about Jesus. The whole Old Testament is bristling with information about Jesus and God's big plan. We come to the Old Testament with Christ the key. The gospel is revealed and recorded. And thirdly, it's received truth. The eternal God, you see how he puts it here. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. What's he referring to there? The eternal God. I think the answer comes in Revelation chapter 1. There John has a vision of Jesus, now exalted, raised from the dead, and Jesus identifies himself. John John just sees the divine figure. He falls down in, in worship. He can't lift up his eyes to look. And Jesus has to speak to him in, from his exalted state. And he says this to him. I was dead. I am alive forevermore. I am the living one. The living one. That is the eternal one. And so John sees the eternal God in Christ displaying himself as the eternal one. 
And this is the one, this risen Lord Jesus is the one, the living one who comes to commission the church at the end of Matthew to go into all the world to preach the gospel. And the result of that preaching, that proclamation is that Jews and Gentiles are being swept into the kingdom of God as they are brought to the obedience of faith. There is, in fact, no artificial or actual limit to the gospel's advance in the world. And the beneficiaries of the gospel are to be found anywhere and everywhere. There are men and women in every generation. So that when the gospel reaches its finale in Revelation chapter 7, we see this great multitude that no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before God and singing together salvation to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The mystery of God in Christ, in His incarnation, death, and resurrection. The mystery of God in the church, a church that is multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic. So we see the power of God and the gospel of God and the mystery of God. Fourthly, we have the glory of God. This word glory is in Greek doxa, which gives us the word for our title, doxology. Glory, the word, as it's used in the Bible, is virtually synonymous with God himself. It denotes divine and heavenly radiance, the loftiness, the uh, infinite fullness of God's life and majesty. In fact, the word glory can actually denote simply the being of God, what He is and who He is. The Hebrew word behind this Greek word, doxa, the Hebrew word involves the idea of weight or worth. Somebody is worth their weight in gold, was an old expression. That sense. And it describes the, the sheer impressiveness of God, the brilliance, the beauty, the incomparableness of God. Moses got to see the glory. He only got to see the afterburner. The glory is not, the glory is a, a revelation of God, something that can be seen. But there's God, and then there's the revelation of God, the glory, and then there's the afterburner. And Moses got to see the afterburner as the glory swept by on the mountain. But when we as Christians talk about the glory of God, we're thinking of something in which we are invested. In, in Psalm 63, the psalmist prays that he might see God's glory in the sanctuary. That is, not just the earthly holy of holies, but in the heavenly sanctuary. And we are destined to see God's glory. The pure in heart will see God. Not only that, we can say, as the psalmist says in Psalm 138, great is the glory of God. And we give glory to God when we recognize the uniqueness and the highness of God's glory. 
But even more than that, our destiny, our destiny is to see and share in the glory of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples saw Jesus transfigured before them. His transfiguration was an echo of theirs. They too will be glorified as Jesus is glorified. Our bodies too will be transfigured at the resurrection until they are like unto his glorious body. We will share in the glory. We will come in the glory, in the clouds of glory, with Jesus. We will share his glory forevermore. Now, as Paul concludes this little summary of the gospel, there are three key words that we need to pay attention to as we close. In the Greek, these words are mono, sopho, and theo. Mono means only, to the only, the mono, to the only God. When we talk of God as the only God, we are reminding ourselves that God has his own life without us. God is his own life without us. And that life that God has without us or without anything outside of him, like the whole universe, God enjoyed was perfect and full and fecund through all eternity. There's just a fullness, a givingness to God, all eternity begetting the Son and spirating the Spirit. When we read this word only, it refers to God's absolute and perfect oneness. He is His is a singular being. He stands alone and above and before all other entities. God is not one individual among many. He is one over all. I am the Lord and there is none beside me, God says in Isaiah 46. His is not a numerical oneness, as if he were one and then there were two, three, four others coming after. His is not a numerical oneness. He is only because he exhausts in himself everything that there is about God. Everything. God-like is exhausted in him. Only in him. He is only because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the A and the Z, or Z in English. And that place is Jesus Christ, you see, who in the book of Revelation is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the A and the Z. Jesus Christ is placed within the singular life of the only. He is the author and maker and sustainer of all the multiplicity and variety that there is outside of himself. The so-called gods of the pagans are inventions of people's minds or they are demons masquerading as gods. Jesus rebuked people for not seeking the glory that comes from the only God. And he places himself 
in the category when he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Mono then, giving us monotheism, God is the only God. Sopho, wise. Holy Scripture designates God's inner life as that of wisdom, countless times. Christ, too, in his eternal life before the incarnation, personified wisdom in the book of Proverbs, chapter chapter 8. God, who is the living one, is the perfection of wisdom. 19th century scholar Sheban puts it like this, the fullest knowledge possible of the highest truth and the most perfect love possible for the higher, highest good, as well as the judgment and evaluation of everything else in consideration of the highest truth and the highest good, and thus the ability to order and to arrange everything according to the highest ideal and highest goal. God's wisdom. And that wisdom is found in Christ, who's the wisdom of God. In him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge we read in Colossians 2. And it's to be found, strangely enough, at the cross. On the surface of the thing, the cross is a magnificent failure. At the cross... The death of the Son of God seems to be the end, and such a disgusting end. And yet the cross, rather than being absolute folly and failure, is in fact the power and wisdom of God in action in order to save a multicultural, multinational, multiracial church on its way to uniting everything, everything creaturely. That is the universe as well as us under Christ. That is the ultimate goal. No wonder Paul when he's considering these things earlier on in Romans, goes, says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Well, that leaves us with the last word. Theo, God. To God belongs glory from the ages to the ages. That belongs exclusively to God alone. And so to the answer to all of your questions is God. If your questions are, how do I keep going? How do I, how do I endure when suffering? How do I face the decisions I have to make in my life and the uncertainties of my life? And how do we proceed in an environment where everybody is biting and devouring one another in the, in the wider world? How do, we, how do we face the prospect of nuclear annihilation? Do we do all of those things? The answer to the question is God. What he has willed, he will do. There are all kinds of competing 
theories going around the, the world as to how the world is going to end. We know how the world is going to end with the return of Jesus Christ. We know the future of the planet. God is not indifferent, by the way, about us abusing the planet. We were originally charged in Genesis with caring for what God has put in our hands. So there's a Christian way of looking at that. But here's what the Christian knows. God has a plan not only for us, but for this universe to renew it, to make all things new. So how do I come to know this God? Jesus said, eternal life is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do I get to know God? I come to Jesus. I come to the man Christ Jesus, what he did and accomplished in his human nature while he was in the world. His birth by Mary, his death by Pontius Pilate, his resurrection. He raised himself, the Spirit raised him, the Father raised him. His resurrection by God the Holy Trinity. So the Bible revels in this. Jude in his little book, verse 25, ends like this. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. Peter, in his little book, 1 Peter chapter 4, says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Christian can't help but sing glory to God who has done so much for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear your word, to hear your voice speaking to us. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, encourage our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.